Good morning, gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed stumbling in the dark on the way to Bible study this morning. Now you do it to go pheasant hunting, duck hunting. Why not study the Bible before the sun comes up? Maybe we'll be a little bit better when the sun comes out. Be better prepared for the day. Folks, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is where you've done all your memory work as a child. It'll be very familiar to you. Deuteronomy 4 is a great chapter in the Bible. And we've seen that uh, Moses is coming to the end of his life, the end of his leadership career. He's got the entire church of God waiting on the east side of the Jordan, wondering where from here. They've been wandering for 40 years, waiting for their fathers to die off because they were unfaithful. And God disciplined them. And now the children are ready to go in. The children of Israel are ready to go in. And they're going to cross the Jordan at flood stage and take these fortified cities with giants in them. And they're, they're feeling a little fear and trembling. And Moses is giving them his farewell speeches. And as you see from the outline in the introduction to this book in your ESV study Bible, he gives basically three big addresses. And this is the first one. It goes from chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 43. In this first speech, Moses, we saw in chapter 1, is saying to them, look, we're getting ready to go into the Holy Land. This is what God's going to expect of you. And don't forget who God is. And he reminds them that they were at Kadesh Barnea. They had their first chance 38 years ago to go in without all the wandering that they've had for all these years and without the judgment of an entire generation. They had their chance. But they believed the ten negative reports instead of the two encouraging reports. And they believed that the, the Anakim were too big for them to take because they were thinking about themselves instead of thinking about how big and great God is. So they lost their faith. And Moses reminds them of them, don't forget Kadesh Barnea. And then when we got to chapters 2 and 3, two weeks ago, we saw that he reminds them of another thing. Yes, he disciplined you at Kadesh Barnea. And discipline is an important thing in, in our lives as well. But then he brought you around over these 38 years until you got where you are right now. And you had to win two huge battles against uh, Sion, uh, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of the Amorites. And God undertook for you. And he defeated both of those kings for you. And in fact, it was a holy war, as we saw. It was pretty bloody. But it was God's judgment, his eternal judgment, coming into time, delegated to his people under the dictate of a theocracy. We saw all the conditions that applied there that, of course, have no application today, except that we look forward to the next theocracy when Jesus Christ comes back physically and reconstitutes his geopolitical kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. So Moses has reminded them of God's activity in the past to remember who it is with whom they are dealing. Now he gets to the end of this first speech in chapter 4, and we're going to see that he now gives them some very special instructions about what happens when you get in the promised land. How are you going to hang on to it? It's one thing to go in and take it, uh, and you must take it, but you must take it and keep it. 
And he's reminding them there are some very special provisions about all of this. Let's read, let's just read our first section, which is verses 1 through 14. This will be page 337, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Only take care and keep your soul diligent, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. First thing I want us to notice here in verses 1 through 14 is that possession of the land, possession of the good things of God, possession demands obedience. Folks, uh, what Moses is going to teach them in this last portion of his first sermon, is that if you're to take and keep the inheritance that's offered to you, you have to think about your relationship to the Word of God. We're going to see in a moment, you have to think about your relationship to all the false idols that are around you, and you have to think about your relationship to the Lord Himself. That's really what Moses is saying. Take care for these three relationships. Right here, he's saying, take care for your relationship to the Word of God. If you were going, going to take possession, that's going to involve your obedience. Now, some of us may be thinking, I thought, you know, we just took possession because the Lord died on the cross. He was raised to everlasting life and went to heaven and he gives us the inheritance. Yes, indeed. I, I thought we say well, it was all of Christ and he, he did it for us. So what do we have to do to, to gain the inheritance? Here's the deal. When Christ dies for you, 
He also takes up residence in your heart and changes your nature. So that to follow Him means you receive the gift of life that He has accomplished for you on the cross and the resurrection. You also take up the new life. If a person doesn't take up the new life, then they've not received the benefits because anyone who's received the benefits truly has also received the great benefit of His Spirit in our life changing our life. So there's a sense in which the commandment is simply commanding us to do what God is enabling us to do by His presence in our life. So they both go together. God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign grace in saving us, and part of His sovereign grace is He changes our nature so that we can hear commandments and walk with Him. Anyone who doesn't hear His commandments and walk with Him has not received His grace. So you can look at it from a divine perspective or the human perspective, and you see two sides of the same coin. Here in Deuteronomy, primarily it feels as though we're looking at the human side of the coin. We're hearing God's commandments, and He is teaching us that if we do not keep them, then we will surrender our place in the Holy Land. We'll surrender our enjoyment of all of His benefits. But we're going to see in a few moments, we also get a picture of the divine side of this, that God has accomplished something that's even going to trump our disobedience as a people, as we will see. But here he's giving us solemn warnings. And as we've been regenerated, born again, received his spirit, we hear these solemn warnings. Yes, he's our father, but our father is the king. He's the king of the cosmos. And yes, we fear him with reverence and worship because he is the only true God. But he is our father, both. Now, the problem is, as Jesus taught in the Gospels, that the Word of God is given to people and they will respond in a certain way. And as far as we know, they all seem to be walking faithfully with Him. But Jesus teaches us that there are internal distinctions. Some people actually look like they received the Word and they really didn't receive it. Do you remember the parable of the four soils? He says that a sower went about sowing his seed. He sowed it profitably to all men. But some of that seed fell on a worn path. And before it ever went into the soil and developed any roots at all, a bird comes by and takes that seed off. So the seed was given. The words went into the ear. But there were no roots that developed because... He just ignored it, basically. And a bird came by, took the word off, he even forgot what the gospel was. The second soil, do you remember? The seed fell in and it did develop some roots and it began to grow just a little bit. And then persecution came. Persecution because of the word of God, Jesus says. The sun beat down on that plant. And because it was in rocky soil, which means it was very shallow, there was... a. Uh, uh, level of rock right underneath the soil. So the soil was very shallow. The roots didn't go down very deeply. And the sun scorched the plant and killed it. And Jesus interpreted later that that shows the person who initially springs up with joy. He looks like just one of us. But then when the times get tough, he scorches because he didn't have deep soil. And Jesus says there are many people like that. The third kind of soil, he says, he sows the seed and it goes into what he calls thorny ground. The seed grows up. It looks like it's going to be a very successful plant, but the thorns grow up and choke it out. And Jesus later interpreted that by saying 
Those thorns were the concerns of this world, greed and ambition. And so it looked as though the seed was growing and producing and it looked just like all the rest of us, but the soil was not cultivated. The false idols were not taken out of the soil and the false idols eventually choked the seed. The fourth soil, he says, is the fertile soil, which was deep enough and it was also cultivated. And the seed is sown, the plant grows up and bears fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. In other words, it bears fruit. Jesus was saying that's the nature of the kingdom, that the word goes out to everybody. Some people initially respond favorably, but it's only the cultivated deep soil that can sustain the plant that is fruitful that leads to everlasting life. Now, gentlemen, this is a version of that in the Old Testament, that we're being given the gift of the church's inheritance, the favor of God, the enjoyment of his fellowship, the hearing of his word, uh, the, the sharing of life together and possessions and caring for one another as brothers, but be very careful because today, just as in the time of Jesus and just as in the time of Moses, there are different types of soil. And there's, there's nothing wrong with a sower. There's nothing wrong with the seed. What's wrong is the soil. It's our souls. It's our hearts. Be sure that our hearts are cultivated to hear the word of God so that we take it in, ingest it. It takes root in our lives and begins to bear fruit. That's the great warning Moses is giving. He's saying you all can go in as a church. Everybody's been baptized, sanitized, all the rest. And you go in as a church, but you're only really going to survive if you have the real soil in your heart. Be diligent about cultivating your heart because eventually we will all be revealed for who we are. That's the tragedy for many in Israel, as we know from the pages of the Bible that follow later on, they received great discipline because they hadn't cultivated the soil in their hearts. All goes back to Moses. He was telling them what was important. They were going to be mightily tempted when they made their profession of faith and identified with the people of God. And then they started to engage the battle. You're going to be mightily tempted. So here is the warning. First of all, watch your relationship to the word. Possession demands obedience. Now notice first of all in verse uh, verses one, uh, verse 1, he just simply says, and now, O Israel, listen, L listen to him. Listen to the statutes and rules that I'm teaching you. So we listen to the word of God. That's the reason we come to Amen Bible study. It's the reason we go to our Sunday school classes. It's the reason we listen to sermons. It's the reason we have tapes that, or, or CDs or DVDs that we observe. We want to listen to the word of God. We want to learn the word of God. And not only that, we want to meditate upon it. Have you ever just taken one of the commandments? Um, Thou shalt not murder. Just meditate on that. How do I... Maybe, maybe most of you have not murdered anybody physically. Uh, but have you ever thought about how you've murdered them in your heart? How you wish that they were dead, literally? How you may have ruined their reputation? You may have taken life away from them in some way? If you just meditate on that commandment, uh, and especially if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, how Jesus says that uncontrolled anger is a form of murder. Have you ever just meditated on that and have thought about how that commandment affects your life? Not to take life away from someone, and the opposite is true, give life to people. The commandment is to give life to other people. And you just meditate on what that means for you today at work. You could take an hour meditating on that one, the, the, the sixth commandment alone. Just, just meditating on it. And 
what the Bible says is the man of God is the man who meditates on his law day and night. We hear the commandment, we listen to it, and then we just think it through. What does, what does that mean for me? My relationship to my neighbor, my relationship to God in worship, how do I apply that? And it just suffuses your life like good soil. So listen to the statutes and the rules. And then notice he says not only listen to them, but do them. Do them. We really only learn the word when we put it into practice. The reason that the bird came by and took the seed is because there was not the first step to put the thing in practice. And so if you don't put something into practice, you forget it. You lose it. The measure you use will be measured unto you, Jesus says. Be careful how you hear. The measure that you use will be the measure used to you. In other words, those who have will have more, and those who don't have, not even what they, what they don't have will be taken away. So what you put into practice is what you remember in your spirit, in your soul. So be very careful to listen, meditate, and do the Word of God. Jesus said that, a man who hears the word of God and doesn't do it is like a man who builds his house on the sand. But a man who hears the word of God and does it is like a man who builds his house on the foundation of a rock. And when the winds come and the rains and the floods come, beat against that house, it's going to stand firm because they, that man not only heard the word, but he put it into practice. Don't you find that in your life? Don't you, don't you experience through the years, gentlemen, those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a good number of years, that the more you've practiced the Word of God, the stronger the foundation of your life is and the readier your intuitions are to go into operation when there's an ethical dilemma around you. Don't you just find that increasing practice with it is, is the way in which we actually learn? And uh, those of you who've been in your business for a good number of years, you know that if someone starts out in your business this year, it'll take them about five times as much time to do what you do. And so often older men don't remember this, that when you're mentoring or coaching someone, you've got to slow down. They're having to wire everything up in their brain, things you've had wired for years, and you do it intuitively. They're having to wire all that up in that first year. First-year teachers, it's notorious, the amount of stress on them. They have to learn everything first time through. It's the same way with the Lord. When, when you're first walking with Him, you're having to think everything through. But gentlemen, one of the beauties of growing in Christ is that you're developing a stronger, a firmer foundation. You can make ethical decisions and choices readily. It comes intuitive to you. You're a wise man because you've been doing it for a number of years. That's exactly what's being taught here. He says, listen to him. Now, notice a couple of warnings here. First of all, don't add or subtract. He says in verse 2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. And you know what? All of us are tempted to do both of those things. I mean, all you have to do is look in your Bible and see what you underline. And everything you didn't underline is you're tempted to subtract it. You are. The things you underline, you say, man, that's cool. That's just what I was thinking. <laughs> I said that to my wife and my kids the other day. And here it is. Finally, I found a proof for what I was saying. 
And that's sometimes the way we come to the Bible. It's a proof text for what we already believed. And so we pick the things out that fit our worldview. It's amazing how people will try to tame Jesus and co-opt the Bible. And you can do that. You can lift some verses out, fit it into your existing worldview. And if you'll just ignore several verses, you can kind of shift the religion a little bit. Rather than coming under the word and all of it speaks to you, you do not subtract anything. You take every verse seriously, and especially if a verse makes you uncomfortable. Especially if a verse makes you uncomfortable. If you're a Calvinist, and for God so loved the world makes you uncomfortable, you better stay there a long time. If you're an Arminian, and he chose us before the foundation of the world makes you uncomfortable, you better stay there a long time. Especially the verses that make you uncomfortable. Stop. Listen. Meditate. And do it. And then you'll find that your, your, your relationship with God is really becoming a relationship with God and not some figment of your previous imagination. So we all tend to subtract the things that make us uncomfortable. We say, oh, I really wish Paul hadn't said that. <laughs> you ever find yourself saying that? Sometimes theologically I'm saying, I wish Paul hadn't said that. It's just so difficult to teach. And we all tend to add. When we want to man- manipulate someone, especially our children, we'll just make up rules. Well, you know, as Hezekiah 4.3 says, <laughs> you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. Penny saved, penny earned. That's somewhere in Ecclesiastes, I think. Just making up stuff. Hey, brothers, the, the, the rules that are in this book are enough for me. Please don't add to it. Don't give me your stuff about you can't drink a glass of wine or you can't smoke a cigarette. It's not in there. Look, I believe you should be careful about alcohol. I, don't, I can't imagine why you think cigarettes are good for you, but it's not in the book. Let's just stick to what's in the book. That's a plenty to deal with. All right? Now, don't add or subtract, because when you add or subtract, or you have a spirit of subtraction, or a spirit of addition, it's a spirit contrary to the Word of God. This book is what God said, nothing more, nothing less. Now, secondly, he says, remember the past. You've seen with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor, and what did God do at Baal Peor? At Baal Peor, they decided that they wanted to have sex with whomever they wanted to have sex. And some of these Peorite <laughs> Peoria women. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> and they were available. I tell you why they were available. Because their religion was not the same as our religion. And their religion was the religion of Baal. And Baal is a fertility god. Ha! Boy, I sure am glad I came to town. And uh, in Baal worship, what you do is you go to the Baal temple and get a get hook up with a couple of Baal prostitutes and have some fun. Because you are having sex before the gods. And you're trying to manipulate Baal to be fertile with the land. And so really, it's your religious duty. Have a little sex. Uh, Nice religion, isn't it? Except for one big problem. It's offensive to the one who made you and redeemed you and called you out of darkness into his light. He hates it. That's your big problem. So you got a choice. Am I going to fulfill my sexual appetite? Or am I going to do what the Lord wants me to do? Here's what Moses said. You be very careful. You know what the Bible says. Listen to it. Meditate upon it. And do it. And remember something. You tried this before. You're getting ready to go into the land of Canaanites. You're getting ready to go into Memphis. And there are plenty of opportunities. And you tried this before. 
Do you remember? At Peor. And what you did was you took up with those women, you had sex with them, and then they started to tease you into worshiping their own gods because you were already in their temples. And you remember what God did? He took 24,000 of you. And the last one to go was a man named Zimri with his little cute girl, Cosby, and they were having sex, and the Levites took a spear and drove it through both of them, and that kind of ended the plague. Now, let's remember that. You saw the Lord's wrath against men who desire sex with another, uh, with a person more than they desire intimacy with God. Don't forget God. Don't forget His Word, and don't forget God. He says, just a little history lesson that'll, that'll help you. Sometimes, <clears throat> if, I'm, if I'm in a place... Uh, I've already told you I avoid beaches during the daylight hours. Uh, it's too dangerous. But if I am there with my family, I'm walking the beach, and I see all these girls flopping around, I just, I just say, Lord, help me to smell death right now. <laughs> help me to smell Bell Pure. Death everywhere. 24,000 dead, plague-ridden bodies. Let me get that stench in my nostrils. Thank you, Lord. That helps. Little, little history lesson. Remember the past. Uh, listen to him. Don't add or subtract. Remember the past. Secondly, notice in verses 5 through 8, there is a missiological element to God's law for us. Remember when God called Abraham, he called him to be blessed. He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a, a great name. I'm going to give you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great land. And you will be blessed and the nations of the world will be blessed through you. That's the reason that when you see the progress of the gospel among a people, you begin to see those people, whatever part of the world they're in, they begin to become a staging ground for international mission. It happened here. It happened in UK in the 19th century. It happened here in the 19th and 20th century. You find it in Korea now, who's had 100 years of the gospel, and it's exploded. And what are they doing? They're sending missionaries to every part of the world. It's always true. When you get the word of God in your heart, you begin to experience life. You feel the call of Abraham to be blessed and to bless the nations. And that's what, what God is saying here. Don't forget, it's not just your life that's at stake. It's not just your enjoyment of the inheritance of God. It's your mission to the world. Why? Look what happens. First of all, in verses 5 and 6, you'll see that the people look at us because we're obeying the Word of God. And they say, what a wise and understanding people these are. If you've been in it for a while, if you've been walking with Jesus, you have no idea how wise you really are. It's been amazing to me in rearing kids in my family who know a whole lot more in junior high than I knew at 25. And when they're in junior high, they are giving me advice that is good advice. In fact, it's even corrective advice to me. And I'm looking at this little squat. And I'm thinking, where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It just came from 12 years of being immersed in the Bible. That's it. And this little 12-year-old becomes a genius. <laughs> It's true. It was true with Jesus. The rabbis were astonished at the learning of Jesus. Why? He had simply learned the Bible and had been putting it into practice for 12 years. As a little kid, he was, he was a genius, a moral and ethical, theological genius. 
And that's what Moses is saying. If you'll just do these simple things, the childlike things of obeying God's simple word, you will be the wisest people on the face of the earth. It's not your Harvards and your Stanfords and your Dukes. It's not. It's simple obedience to the word of God that makes a people wise. And you will become counselors to anybody if you will simply take the word of God and put it into practice. You know why? You can say, well, Mr. So-and-so, I, you know, I've never had a position like yours, but I have been doing this and this in little ways, and here's how I handled a parallel situation in my own life. You just tell your story. This is what I did. That makes you a very wise person. And the one who's managing all these things didn't think you knew anything. He says, man, that makes sense. <laughs> it's amazing. So Moses is saying, folks, don't give that up. You have a mission to the nations to be wise. Secondly, they will say of you, what great nation is there who has a God so near? The presence of the Lord is the key to Deuteronomy. The whole idea is they're going into the holy land where there will be a holy temple where the holy God will take up residence with his people. That's what distinguishes us. Nothing else. We are a people among whom, and in this case, in whom in the New Testament, God has taken up residence. We are the temple of God. He lives here. This is his residence in the heart of his people, in his church, among, among his holy nation. And Moses said, the people of the world are going to look at you and say, how did God come so close to you? Who has a God that's so close to them? All the other gods are deistic. All the other gods are way up there. They don't have personal relationships with us. You can be try to wave at them and get their attention and try to manipulate them and offer your children to sacrifices to see if they will somehow respond to you. But you've got a God who speaks to you daily, listens to everything that you say, watches every tear that falls from your eye, hears every groaning and sighing. What nation has a God like this? And Moses says, don't surrender that gentleman. You're going into an inheritance where God says he'll take up residence with you and live with you and abide with you and shine through you. Don't lose that. And then he says to them, what nation has rules that are so righteous, laws so righteous? You have the law of God. It is a law that brings him honor and glory. It is a law which reconciles relationships it's not just a law of vengeance. I mean, look around the world, and when you have, what's the best you can come up with? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You take someone's eye, we'll take your eye out. There's retributive justice. That's the best you can do anywhere around the world. What people in this world have a law that you forgive one another for taking your eye out? Where do you get that? In Islam? In Hinduism? In China? Where do you get this? Where is there a people who has a law like that? There is nowhere, gentlemen. And Moses is saying you're a distinctive people. You have the wisdom of God. You have his presence with you. You have laws that shine with radiance. They're distinct from the laws of Hammurabi, which were contemporary with Moses. These are different laws. They're the law of God. They reveal His distinctive character. Don't lose it. Live in community according to this law. 
Keep these laws among yourself. Treat each other the way the Bible says to. And you become the wise and righteous community. This is the reason I'm convinced that the Queen of Sheba went thousands of miles just to appear in Solomon's court. She said, Solomon, the reputation of your wisdom has gone around the world. I just have a few questions I want to ask you. And she posed him questions all day long. Just the privilege. This queen, in her own right, travels to go see this king. Why? Because he has wisdom. And gentlemen, one wiser than Solomon has come. The one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is wisdom incarnate and he lives in your heart. And there are kings and queens who, if they had any sense, would travel thousands of miles just to talk to you to find out how to deal with life's situations because God has given you this divine wisdom. Moses is simply saying, look, in order to possess the land and keep it, obey the word of God. And it will bless you and it will bless the nations around you. Now notice he presses his case in verses 9 through 14. He says, take special care. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, our motto was Victoria Amat Kuram. Victory loves care. Victory does love care. Salvation loves care. Walking with God loves care. Anything you desire takes care. And here's what Moses says. First of all, take care for your soul. Keep your soul diligently lest you forget. What is it? that we forget. Well, if you'll look in verse 9, he says, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. They have seen certain things. They've seen what God did at Baal Peor just recently. They saw what God did with, with Sion and Og. They've seen a lot of things. And those were very vivid, graphic things. You think, how could anybody forget the plague-ridden bodies of 24,000 people and a javelin through the heart of Zimri. Who could forget all the women and children uh, in the kingdom of the Amorites slain? Who could forget that? You can. Why do you forget? Why do we all forget? Well, the main thing is success. Success makes you forget. Reminds me of the man who was, he was up on his uh, steep roof and he was hammering in the shingles <clears throat> and he started to slip and the rope around his waist broke and he was going down the roof and said, Lord, help me, help me. And he was just desperate because it was up three stories. He knew was, this was going to be a bad scene. Either he was going out of here or he's going to break a few bones. Lord, help me, help me. And just when he got to the end of the, right where the gutter was, there was a nail they caught the back loop of his pants and just held him there. And he said, oh, never mind, Lord, uh, nail caught my pants. <laughs> That's what happens. You see some natural causation and your mind becomes secular. Secular, the word secular from the Latin just means this world. Your mind becomes this worldly. You think that everything is really controlled by chance. There is no such thing as chance. I don't know what chance is, but that's what you do. Or, more subtly, you begin to think that things are going well for you because really you're quite clever. You're good at what you do. People like you. You have a good personality. And that's the reason things are going well. 
Success makes you forget. And if you're being successful right now in the midst of declining economic conditions or if you're successful in your family or you're really proud of your children, just watch out. Don't forget. Uh, and keep diligence for your soul and remember the Lord. Uh, and then notice secondly, in verses 9b through 11, he says, your children. He's saying take care for your soul and take care for your children. And what is he saying here? Make all these laws known to your children. The way in which you learn something is to do it. The way in which you understand what you're doing is to teach it. The biggest blessing always comes to the teacher. And gentlemen, I would say to you, um, every single one of you, can you find some realm in which you're teaching? You may be a father and you've got little children at your feet. Great. You've got them right there. Main one to teach. I didn't say your wife. I said your children. If you don't have children or grandchildren and you're not actively teaching them, find some surrogate children or grandchildren. Find someone you can help. And we always say among the men in our church, if your peers aren't listening to you, fine. There, there are really not too many people who are effective in teaching their peers. Why? Well, your peers say, I didn't know anything more than I do. What's he talking about? Well, you go down about 10 years, and it's amazing who will listen to you. Some of you need to go down 20. Some of you need to go to the nursery. I'm serious. All, my only point is there is a place you can go where eventually you can help somebody, and you can convey the Word of God to somebody even non-verbally, by just holding an infant in your arms and smiling at her, you can convey the love of God to them. And every one of us needs to be involved in teaching somewhere. Every one of us. We need to become men who can communicate the word. In one sense, it helps us keep the word ourselves. But notice here, it also has to do with the generations. Yeah, you go into the promised land. Yeah, you, you go to the church. And in your church, it's just like ours. We build our buildings and we do this. We get organized and we get everybody in leadership. You know what? You're not going to be there very long. And if you're not already thinking about the year 2050, you're being really silly. Everything that we do should be in view of 2050. And at one time I was coming out with a, an older member uh, of a congregation I served before. And across the street, this was the first church I served, across the street from the church was the funeral home, Hathaway Percy. And we were coming out, and he, he said to me, just the two of us, an older elder, he looked at this holly tree, and he said, you know that holly tree needs to be trimmed back. But he said, before it grows back, I'll be over there at Hathaway Percy. <laughs> I thought, you know, that's a problem. You need young deacons who will trim the trees because they'll be here when they come back right. You know? But the better answer is we need to go ahead and trim the holly tree for the next generation when we're in Hathaway Percy. And that's what Moses is saying. Remember, you belong to a long line. We belong to these people. These are our people. These are our fathers. And Moses is talking to them about teaching us. And he's talking to us about teaching them. That's our solemn duty. Let's be sure we do it. Just get a little bit of their TV time, a little bit of their video time, a little bit of their computer time. Let's teach them. And then he says, be careful about your worship. He said, when you... When you encountered me, you heard the sound of words, but you didn't see a form. So he's saying God is invisible. So if you're worshiping something visible, you got yourself a problem. Because you saw it. You all saw it. <clears throat> you saw nothing. You heard something. You saw the mountain shake. You saw the fire and you saw the smoke. 
But you didn't see me. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But he's saying, be very careful with your worship that you don't get carried away with your pagan pageantry and put idols everywhere and bow here and bow there and go through all their motions and adopt their worshipful ways. No, this is different. It's different from Egypt. It's different from Moab. It's different from Peor. It's different from Greek. It's different from Rome. This is unique. It's God is, He is invisible. Now, of course, He becomes incarnate later. But He is invisible. And so, therefore, our worship must reflect that. And then fourthly, He says, take care for your own behavior. He declared to you His covenant. And this covenant, at the essence of it, was Ten Commandments. He wants you to walk this way. And once again, if one of those commandments makes you feel uncomfortable, that's the one you ought to meditate the most. Someone once said, you know, I'm doing really well. Those Ten Commandments, I think I got nine out of ten. <laughs> Don't want to know which one he left out. But he's saying Ten Commandments, the statutes and rules, watch your behavior. Your behavior is very carefully, very carefully needs to be watched. It'll affect your soul. If you're doing this and doing that, if you're hooked on pornography and you keep doing it, it just deadens your soul. If you just keep holding back the tithe from the Lord, keep being greedy and not serving your neighbor, keep ignoring the poor, it impoverishes your soul. If you keep saying ethnic jokes, if you keep uh, your little ethnic purity in all of your relationships, if you have nothing to do with people of, of um, diverse colors and backgrounds in our city, it deadens your soul. It's a denial of the gospel. What do you expect to happen to your soul? Be very careful how you behave in every way because it will affect your relationship with Him. So the first thing He's saying to us uh, is possession demands obedience. Now we're going to have to move faster. Secondly, possession prohibits idolatry in verses 15 through 31. He says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. See, He uses this word care or watch again. Since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is under, in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Okay, here's what he's doing. Moses is reciting a litany. He's already done it before in reverse order in Genesis chapter 1. And he is challenging these people with a religious background of idolatry to leave, to renounce completely their idolatry and come completely into a relationship with one true God and worship Him in the way He wants to be worshipped. In Genesis 1, you remember... The first day was light. The second day was separation of the water in the, in the firmament. The third day was the creation of the land and vegetation. Okay? One, two, three. Now remember days four, five, six. Day four was the sun, moon, and stars that fit into the realm of light. The second day was the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, which fit into the realm of water and firmament. So day two and day five are parallel. Then day six, what do you get? You get the creeping animals, uh, even the snakes, and you get human beings made on the sixth day in the realm of the land. 
So here you have the three realms. Here you have the three uh, elements that fill the, the, the realms. Notice the order. It's the reverse order here. He ends with sun, moon, and stars. That's day four. He starts with worshiping any man or animals. That's day six. So in Deuteronomy 4, you have Moses going through the same order. He's just doing in reverse order. And here's what he's saying. Leave your gods. Now in our day, we don't bow down to the Ra, the sun god. We don't bow down to the holy cow. You want to know where Aaron got that in the middle of the wilderness? That's what he learned in Egypt. They, they worship cows. That's the reason for the golden calf in Exodus 34. They were bringing the worship of Egypt into the worship of Israel. It doesn't work. So when you come to take the promised land, if you want to keep it, you have to renounce your gods. Here's what Ezekiel teaches us, that the heart actually creates gods. In Ezekiel, he teaches us that these gods we take into our hearts. And you'll find that the apostles even talk of greed or covetousness as idolatry. So the Bible teaches us that you can create your own idols that are actually invisible to those outside of you. So, okay, you don't bow to Ra, the sun god. How about your job? How about your reputation? How about your car, your house, your vacation home, your bank account, your success, your image? As one Puritan said, the heart is an idol factory. We produce these things over and over again. And what is an idol? An idol is what you love, trust, and obey. And I deal with men, especially in the Bible Belt, all the time who want to kind of come in and be associated. They'll even be willing to join your church. But they haven't renounced their idols. And Moses is saying, you've got to be sure that the worship of God is not mixed with idols. You have to cleanse your heart of all of its idols. Because God will find these things out. He knows them in your heart. And he's saying to us, don't bow down to images. Watch out for Genesis 1 and watch out for your own heart and the idols that you create in your heart. The idols that are so typical of our own day are love, affirmation, sex, intimacy, money, greed, success, power, the ability to control things, those are all idols and they must be renounced just as surely as Israel had to renounce their physical idols. Remember his salvation, B. It was the Lord who took you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt. Remember who saved you. Remember what Jesus did for you. Remember this. And that will enable you to thrust your idols out. How do, how do you get rid of idols? You displace them. You can't just say, I'm through with you. No, you have to have somebody else come in and drive that idol out. What comes in? The love of Christ. You invite Christ into your heart. He becomes your one and only devoted God. And the love of Christ dispels and casts out the love for your idols. And so what's wrong is not that you're loving too much. Not that you're lusting too much. As Lewis says, the problem is you're lusting far too little. You're not lusting for Christ. And the more you love him and draw near to him, the more odious the competitors will be to you. So remember his salvation. Remember his discipline. Moses says, I'm not going in here because I screwed up because of you guys. And don't forget it. The head of the band is not going in because of the Lord's discipline. Remember that.
Fourthly, D, remember his jealousy. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Does jealousy seem worthy of him? Does jealousy seem worthy of you if you're a husband and you see her in the arms of another man? You better believe it. You're supposed to be jealous. There is a selfish jealousy, and then there's a serving jealousy. And a man is supposed to jealously guard his home and the protection of his wife and children. And if those wife and children get into trouble or in, in, in harm's way, we get jealous for their protection. That God has put that into us. But don't think for a minute that God as your bridegroom is not jealous when he sees you whoring around with some prostitutes. Of course he gets jealous. He wouldn't be in love with you if he didn't get jealous. And he wouldn't be holy if he didn't get jealous. It's, it's, some of you have actually had this experience. You know there's no greater insult, is there, than for a woman who has vowed to be married to you to break her vows and take up with another man. It's a total insult, total shame, total slap in the face. That's exactly what it is when we decide we'd rather have success, we'd rather have money, and rather have sex than Christ. It's the same sensation, and that's what he's saying here. He is a jealous God. He's supposed to be jealous. He's a raging fire. E, remember his warning. If you act corruptly, you will not live long in the land. He's telling them already. And, of course, they don't live long in the land, do they? They end up being taken out to Babylon and before that to Assyria. The northern kingdom in 722 B.C. is taken captive to, to Assyria. And in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom is taken captive to Babylon. Why? Moses predicted it. If you disobey his word, disobey his worship, he's going to take you out of the land. And these people probably were even un unregenerate. And he scatters them, you'll notice. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone. Do you notice the irony? If you don't get rid of these idols, you will serve them. You'll be taken into captivity, and they will become your gods. And you can have your way with those gods. You want to have sex with that woman? Go right ahead. You can have her god with it. And that's called hell. And so he gives a warning. If you really prefer those gods, then you'll get them. Romans 1, Paul says that in Greco-Roman worship, these pagans, they've been handed over by God's justice. They get what they say they want. And so will we. And then we become like our gods, just as wooden and stonish and hard-hearted as they. That's the judgment. But now, gentlemen, this perhaps may be the key to understanding Deuteronomy in verses 29 through 31. Let's look at verse 29. He says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God. This is from captivity, of course. From there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Gentlemen, this is absolutely astonishing. There is no Hittite treaty or Sumerian treaty or any second millennium B.C. treaty that says this. All those treaties say, you suzerains, let me tell you something. I'm the, uh, you vassals, let me tell you something. I'm the suzerain God. I'm the king of kings. If you disobey me, you're going to be absolutely destroyed. 
You don't have that suzerain king saying, but listen, if you'll seek me with all your heart, I'll forgive you. I'll restore you and I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You ever have a suzerain king say that among the nations? Never. This is the only place. God is saying this relationship with you is unique. Yes, you're going to be challenged to get rid of your idols. And yes, you're going to fail. And let me tell you something, children. I'm still coming after you when you're in captivity. When you think you've sold the store and lost your reputation and all is gone, let me tell you something. I haven't left you yet. All I've done is discipline you. I punish you, yes, but I punish you to get your attention. I've got you in captivity. I've got you in a low place so that I can have you back. And yes, if you look at Hosea, even when you go whoring with several prostitutes over a number of periods of time, I'm taking you back. This is remarkable. This stands out in all of ancient history. This is unique. God's covenant relationship with His men is unique. And gentlemen, I don't care what your failure is. I don't care how many laws you've broken. Would you please look at that? He says, if you'll seek me with all your heart. He doesn't say if you'll pay back everything you stole, if you'll say you're sorry for this, that, and the other, if you'll make it up, if you'll work in my vineyard for 40 years and, and, and do penance, whatever. He's saying, no, now, if you'll just seek me with all your heart, come to me. I'm a gracious God. I'm a merciful God. I'll take you back. It's remarkable. He not only scatters, but he gathers. Now, lastly, you got three minutes. If you want to hang on, it's going to require the devotion of your heart. Possession requires devotion. And here's what he's saying. The reason I'm a jealous God, the reason I'm a gracious God, I'm the only God. And he's saying this to them after they've already gone through the land of Moabites where other gods are being professed. And they're getting ready to go into Canaan and there are multiple gods there. Every little, every little group in Canaan has their own God. They all have their own little altars. There are going to be many claims to deity in the land they're going into. He says, I want to make something perfectly clear. My works are unique. Since the day that God created man on the earth, whether such a great thing has ever happened, he's saying this is cosmic. Nothing like this has ever happened. What is it that's happened? Number one, you'll see it go, he goes through the pattern twice. 33 through 35 and 36 through 39. Same pattern. First of all, this God speaks to you out of the fire. God is speaking to you. What other God has spoken? Has Allah spoken to the Muslims? Have the gods of the Hindus, the 300 million of them, spoken to the Hindus? Buddha is not a God. What God has ever spoken out of fire? There's no God who's ever done that. This God alone. Secondly, He saves you. Has there ever been a God who attempted to go and take a nation from himself from the midst of another nation. Has anybody ever done this? Has any God taken the people, that, the Mongolians who were captive by the Chinese? Has anybody taken the, any nation in the world and delivered them out to be his people? Has this ever happened? No. It was unprecedented. He said, this God speaks, this God saves. And B, he's not only, his works are not only unique, he is personally unique. There is no other besides him. There is no other, verses 35 and 39. And so he's saying, gentlemen, it doesn't matter how many people make claims to their gods. Here's something we know. God is the only God. Has there ever been a God who sent his son, who died on a cross to pay for the sins of all of his people and then was raised on the third day? Gentlemen, has this ever happened before? Has there ever been a God 
who was incarnate and after dying for his people, being raised from the dead, he gave them a benediction and went up to heaven. No, there's never been a God who's done that. Has there ever been a God who says he's going to come back in person, the person of his own incarnate glorified son and reign over the kingdoms of the earth and bring us a new heavens and a new earth where there'll be only peace, no more mourning, crying, pain anymore? No, there's never been a God like that. This is the only true God, gentlemen. And what's vital for us as we go in and seek to take possession of the good things God promises us is to live as men who know our God and do it in the land of the Canaanites. And if we don't, we lose everything. And lastly, therefore, and here's the therefore, therefore, be careful. Seek Him. Obey His Word. Worship Him as He wants. And be His man. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the wonderful challenge to be Your people and the wonderful promise that you will always be with us even when we're disciplined. And that you're not only available to us, but you seek us out. What an amazing God. There is none like you. There is no other. And we worship you and serve you and adore you today. In Jesus' name, amen.